0: Father, we are just grateful um, for your word, particularly this, this section, Father, there is a reason why it is here, and so, Lord, we ask that you will uh, calm our souls, open our hearts, our eyes, Lord, to, to your word and, and what you're going to say to us today. Use me as your vessel, oh, Father. And I just pray that we will walk out of here a changed person. Be with us now. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Brett, for reading that word. <clears throat> Back in uh, 2010, I, I read a book that would forever change my perspective on missions. The book was titled Radical By David Platt. And some of you may know that book well. It's on our back table. Um, I remember I I was married a little over six months when when the book was released. And it's one of those books that really pushed me over the edge to pursue ministry really in in the context of missions. I mean, my desire was to go and, and do missions to an unreached people group, especially after reading this book. I mean, it's a great book. And so, you know, I talked to my, my new bride of six months, and I told her what was on my heart. And just like she does every time I tell her about my crazy endeavors, she, she supported me. I mean, we knew it would take a great act of God to send ordinary people to do ministry. And as time went on, In pursuit of full-time ministry, life happened. You know, we started attending Gateway in 2012 after an internship at another church. And then I started interning here at Gateway about a year later in 2013. Of course, many of you know we had a baby um, who's now a toddler, probably causing havoc right now in the classroom. But I remember is shortly after Piper was born, I began to think about this pursuit of ministry from reading this book. Really, the pursuit of missions and how God brought us here to Gateway. It seemed like my missional desire was, was sort of fading away. You know, instead of traveling to some international destination to do ministry for the glory of God, I was changing diapers in our little apartment. I thought, man, I'm, I'm changing diapers for the glory of God. How radical is that? And to be honest, there's nothing radical about changing diapers. It was very, very ordinary, and it was humbling. And so I looked at our lives as a family, and we were just ordinary people living in the Bay Area, Really, just doing ministry. Friends, let me tell you something. We're all living ordinary lives as a community of believers under a great God. And you know what? I was okay with that. And we should be okay where God has called us right now. Today, we we find in our passage a list of people that really form a unique bond as a community of people under a great God. At first sight, we might be asking, how can a list of names relate to us today? The good thing is, and just like always, God has us in here for a reason. But before we jump into our text this morning, I want to point out a few reminders. If you recall the theme of Nehemiah, God is faithful to restore his his troubled people. Let me say that again. God is faithful to restore his troubled people. Just keep that theme in mind as we continue through the book of Nehemiah. I mean, throughout the first six chapters, Nehemiah never forgot that it was God who took him through this. So let me begin right now with three reminders about Nehemiah that really lead us into chapter 7. Three reminders that lead us into chapter 7. First, we find that Nehemiah acknowledged God. Nehemiah acknowledged God. I mean, he was always consistent in, in, in acknowledging God. Nehemiah's constant talk of God, doing the work, is scattered around the first six chapters. A lot of the able men preach that up here, and they preach it well. I mean, if you remember in chapter 1, he prayed to God with this marvelous prayer, remembering his word, remembering the law, remembering God's promises. Remember after the, de- the devastating news about the exiles. Then we find Nehemiah continuing to see God's hand in all of the chapters that un- unfold from chapter 1. And I'm just going to go through it really quickly here. I'm just quoting verses. In chapter two, verse 12, he says, "God had put it into my heart." In verse 18, he says, "The hand of my God." In chapter four, verse four, he says, "Hear, O our God, for we are despised." And again, Nehemiah in 4:15, God frustrated their plan. In verse 20 of chapter 4, God will fight for us. Then we see the people fearing God in chapter 5. In 519, he says this, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. And last week, Alex preached to chapter 6, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. 6 verse 9. Lastly, in in verse 16, the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. What is Nehemiah doing? He's always acknowledging God. Church, do we acknowledge God in all our circumstances, good or bad, in times of struggle and in times of joy? Well, Nehemiah did. Second, we find that Nehemiah understood the persistent opposition In reading chapters 1 through 6, we find the opposition was strong. Whether it was discouragement, sin, the workload, internal problems, fear, God remained faithful and allowed Nehemiah to push through accomplishing the task at hand. Third, we find Nehemiah continued to lead under God's hand. He appointed able people. Nehemiah was persistent in leading the people to build this wall. And we see how the story unfolds in chapter 7. Nehemiah continued his pursuit in restoring what God called him to do. He rallied a community behind rebuilding, the rebuilding of the walls. And Nehemiah's leadership was consistent. It continued. So in the middle of of the book of Nehemiah, we find this turning point in chapter 7. You see, in chapters 1 to 6, it's, it was, it's about rebuilding, right? And then chapters 8 to 13, to close out the book, we're going to see it's about revival amongst the people. And Pastor Rod will continue the series in chapter 8 next week. So just think, think about that. Rebuilding 1 to 6, Revival, chapters 8 to 13. And here in chapter 7, again, the long list of names. Why? Why the long list of names? Well, all along, the big picture is always about God. God matters to Nehemiah and to his people. We know that well. I don't need to remind you that God is at the center of the universe and not us. But the turning point is this. God is a sovereign creator, the covenant-keeping God, listen to this, who restored his troubled people. Why? Because people matter to God. That is my aim this morning. People matter to God. Maybe you come here this morning questioning life's problems maybe we have questions like what am i doing in this situation or that situation why is this happening to me do i even matter right now let me answer you with joy friends you yes you do matter god cares about his people in the bible and we find that here god cares about his children god cares about you and i And this is what we find. As the story goes on, we find that the book of Nehemiah is centered around the one who remained faithful by restoring his people in order that we we worship him. I mean, that was the whole point in the book of Ezra, if we recall. The rebuilding of the temple. Right? They started in chapter 2. Why were they rebuilding the temple? so that they could worship God. So God is really restoring the community to worship Him. Therefore, people matter to God. So we begin our first point this morning, and we find it in verse 1. Verse 1. A community that worships God. A community that worships God. If there is a time where Nehemiah could kick back drink some coffee or tea, and look at the work accomplished. This was the time. But he didn't do that. I mean, the the walls were were finally restored. And we see that here in in chapter 6, verse 15. Let me read that for you. Chapter 6, verse 15. The walls were restored. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in fifty-two days. Can you imagine the relentless dedication that the people went through? In less than two months, from Nehemiah hearing about the destruction in Jerusalem, we find the work of the people by the hand of God accomplish this magnificent task in fifty-two days. But church, let me reinforce that the walls being built was not the focal point. It was only the first step. In the walls being restored, we also find that it was a restored people. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the gateways, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. Right? The Levites were people who performed ritual duties in order for worship, they led the people in praise. In Ezra 3, we read even when the building, the foundation, the people began to praise the Lord. And they were just building the foundation of the temple. Let me read this for you Ezra 3, verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Chapter 7 brings to light the people praising and worshiping God before the reading of the word in chapter 8. They're, they're being restored. They're worshiping God. They're preparing for chapter 8 when is going to read them the law. The community of exiles were being brought back together again, and worship was in store for God remaining faithful. which is the next point here, restored worship. Restored worship. Worship was restored for God remaining faithful. The Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers were not there only to secure the wall, but to finally worship God in peace. You see, the rebuilding of the walls allowed people to worship God freely and securely in the temple. If the walls were now protected, they could worship God in peace. And there's something beautiful about the sense of restored worship really in our hearts toward God. I mean, last week I I opened the service with with being in awe of God and and beholding the king that we worship. You know, I think at times we forget, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, that we worship such an awesome God here at Gateway Bible Church. I mean, yes, we know this well, that theology matters. The Word of God is central here at Gateway. I always talk about Gateway as being Bereans, or some people like to call Bible thumpers, um, who love the Word. But in your reading of the Word, don't forget to behold your King. Don't just get through your Bible or your Bible reading plan or your devotional. Worship him when you're reading the word, when you're studying theology. Again, I say I'm guilty of this because, you know, being in seminary, you're just bombarded with the Bible and textbooks and theology. And at times I just need to step back and say, Lord, this is is your word. I cannot study this like a textbook, but I need to worship you. Sometimes, in our hearts, we need to pray to God, just like David, in Psalm 51, when he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Don't ever get bored with the Bible, but ask God, plead with God, to restore the joy of your salvation. We find hope is restored here, when the walls are being built. We find that peaceful worship will finally be restored for the people of God. After seeing a community that worships God, our second point brings us to a community, or in parentheses, a leadership that honors God. A community that honors God. In verse 2, we find Hanani and Hananiah. If you remember back in chapter 1, Hanani was one of the people who shared the news about the exiles being in great trouble and shame. In fact, it's safe to say that Hanani was Nehemiah's blood brother. So in addition to appointing Hanani, Nehemiah appoints Hanani as well. So let me, let me clarify a couple of things. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14, we find that Nehemiah was the governor. Hanani was, a, was appointed as a civil leader. Right? If you recall, Hanani's immediate concern and initiative to tell Nehemiah the news made him well qualified to lead the people because he had a heart for the people. But also we have Hanani, Hanani, I'm going to get these names mixed up, Hanani who was appointed as military leader. So again, Nehemiah was governor, Hanani was civil leader, and Hanani was appointed as military leader. And Basically, here are your co-leaders of the people. And Nehemiah was doing this, and with the thought was Nehemiah was he's he was going to head back to Persia soon, and he wanted to make sure the leaders were in place. You know, I I could stand here, if you guys have heard this this text, preached or read books, I could stand here and give you the great leadership qualities. that people have or have thought about in studying the book of Nehemiah, qualities like task oriented or, or passionate, focused, right? Good at delegating. There's, these are all great leadership qualities. However, it, Nehemiah points out something different. He points out different qualities for leadership here. First, he points out that this is a leadership that is faithful to God a leadership that is faithful to God. The Hebrew word for faithful is is firm, trustworthy, reliable, or honest. You see, the big difference between what the world looks for in leadership is entirely different than what God has for his people. Hananiah Hananiah was faithful to God first and foremost, and we find that here in the text. He was faithful. I mean, if you want someone to lead your people, you want them to be faithful. And that's what Nehemiah was looking for someone who's reliable, honest, and totally dependent on God. You know, in, in studying this text, I think of Matthias Mohica, whose faith is relentless. And if you ever sit around and hear his stories of life and ministry, you begin to understand this man's prayer life and faith in God. I mean, how does one lead and shepherd a handful of churches in Bolivia going from town to town without possibly seeing the fruit of the ministry? It requires great faithfulness. And that's Matthias. And everyone who's met him would, would tell you that. Let me add that there is great faithfulness here in this room today. Some, if not most of you, are faithful. You're faithfully teaching our children. It's been said just 45 minutes ago how we acknowledge you. I mean, I I see the names listed every week of those who are teaching our, our children. And I'll be honest with you, you might not see The fruit right away. But you're planting that gospel seed. You're remaining faithful in teaching our children here at Gateway. And so, again, I thank you for that. And I'll talk to you guys more about this later. I'll mention this later. But Nehemiah saw Hananiah's faithfulness. Therefore, again, he was appointed to lead the army. Second, we find a leadership that fears God. A leadership that fears God. In addition to his faithfulness, Nehemiah saw that Hananiah feared God. And we know the book of Proverbs begins with what? The fear of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 7 of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Hananiah feared God, therefore he was equipped to to lead. Some may fear God a little, some, while others fear God more. Nevertheless, I think one of the most dangerous things we face here in the American church is a lack of fear toward God. And some of us have experienced that or have read about it. It's an entirely different picture from what we read in the Bible. If you remember in Isaiah 6... When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up with the train of his robe filled the temple, angels flying around and the foundations shaking, Isaiah just did not respond with, that's nice. How did he respond? He said, woe is me for I am lost. And they say Isaiah fell to the ground as if he were dead. He trembled because he saw God. Yes, I want to make sure that we understand, yes, that God is all-loving, all-knowing, that he loves unconditionally, that he loves us in spite of who we are because of the gospel. I'm not saying fear God because I want you to be scared of him. But if you truly want to see God, if you want to know him, you need to fear him. In Hananiah's case, those who lead need to fear the greatest leader, The king. It's a quality you want to see a leader have. Why is that? Because God humbles those who fear him. God humbles those who fear him. You know, as a a parent, one of my goals is not for Piper to fear me. I mean, ultimately, I pray that she fears God but certainly I do want her to respect me. And sometimes I have to come in strong and discipline her as a parent should. And you see, there may be fear initially, but it quickly turns to joy when I kneel down and I come face to face with her and I tell her that I love her. She may initially see a father that she fears, but at the same time, she finds a father that ultimately loves her. In the same way, God humbles us to the point where we fear him so that we may see him as a loving father. It is through fearing God that we know and experience him more. Let us be humbled and fear God. Gateway, do you you fear God? Once you begin to fear God, the more you will know and see His love for you. Hananiah understood this and feared God. Next, we find a leadership that is watchful. Nehemiah's instructions to have the leaders appoint guards is, is, is not a lack of faith. It was carefully planned that the city needed to be protected. You see, leadership knew the task was not done. But in order to protect the worship of the people, they needed to protect the city. Therefore, faith and God-fearing leaders and or people know that opposition is always near. And we must be watchful. So Nehemiah knew that. They must be watchful. Opposition, they, they, they were facing opposition throughout the building, the walls, What makes you think that we're going to face opposition after? And just like Jesus warns us to keep watch in Mark 13, he says, Be on guard, keep awake. Peter, also in 1 Peter 5 8, he says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour you know as as a pastor and also one of your elders i somewhat understand the meaning of being watchful i mean watching over my own life over my family over over the church for the most part the elders understand the task at hand look i i know the the world pulls us in so many different ways with so many different things and so Really, the warning here is to be watchful. Don't ever think you've made it in the Christian life. That you've conquered sin. Jesus has conquered sin before us, but we must continue to be watchful, especially in our sanctification. Don't believe that life is easy and persecution will not come. Don't fall into that trap. Be careful, church. The devil is coming around like a roaring lion. Don't fall into sin, sins like pride, jealousy, pornography. Keep watch over yourself. Keep watch over your family. Be watchful in the church. We find in chapter 7 a community that honors God by being faithful. God-fearing and watchful. Church, let me say that again, honor God by being faithful, fearing God, and being watchful over your own life. It's a calling for leadership, but it's also a calling for the flock. Finally, in our third point this morning, we find a community that matters to God. A community that matters to God you know, I was thinking about this list over and over for, like, the past month. This is what you do when you're getting ready to preach, you're just always thinking about the text. And it reminded me of the the end credits of a movie. And some of you guys know what I mean. I mean, you watch the movie unfold, and when the, the credits pop up, no one really cares. I mean, unless it's, like, one of those superhero films, you know, where they add a scene after the credits or in between the credits. But let's be honest, you don't usually stay to watch all the names of the people who are involved in the movie. But this is how the chapter concludes. It's the reason why it's here. The Bible doesn't say all Scripture is breathed out by God except for Nehemiah 7. So let's take a closer look at what's here. First, in verse 5, we find the hand of God. The hand of God. 7 verse 5a, then my God put it into my heart. Again, we find the book of Nehemiah that God was always at work in everything that was being done. We, We can't deny that now. I mean, it's only fitting to see Nehemiah use these words again, just like I mentioned in in 2.18 and also in 6.16. Again, Nehemiah did not forget the hand of God in everything that was being done, including the simple tasks as recording the the genealogy of the people together. Right? He was just recording the, the people, the people's names. Yet some people fear a statement like this one, God put it into my heart. But I want you to, to take comfort in knowing that God directs us in all that we do, just like he did with Nehemiah. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is always at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 13. You see, God directed Ezra to rebuild the temple. God directed Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And at times, God directs us. The hand of God may not be directly seen in our lives, yet through people and circumstances, we should find comfort knowing that God really is supreme over all things. The worship of God has to do with knowing that God is always at work in our lives. He is sovereign over our hearts. He is sovereign over our minds. He knows our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, our hurts, our pains. He is sovereign over our marriage, our families, our jobs. He is sovereign over this church. I was reminded of, of Matthew ten twenty nine when Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold, sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from from your Father. The late theologian Abraham Kuyper says this, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. End quote. All the tragedy that we're watching over the news, all the hate you see, God has ordained the evil we see according to his will and purpose. And that, that's a heavy statement. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. We, we, we may not understand everything going on or why things are happening, yet the Bible says he is supreme over all. And this is our God. And so I echo the words again, Behold, this is your king. This is the king of Nehemiah. This is the king of our lives. He's the one that is stirring our hearts. Church, rest in knowing that God wills into our hearts in order that we may know and worship him. God moved Nehemiah's heart to complete the task for his people, even the smallest, the smallest tasks. Lastly, we find that Nehemiah discovers the record of the people that was first recorded in Ezra 2, and I put it up there, the list of all the individual, well, not all, but individuals, families, and co-laborers, and we broke it down. And re- remember the aim of this text, okay? People matter to God. The community of exiles mattered to God. The the original leaders, the Jews who were laymen, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants. Descendants of the servants of Solomon, and lastly, those whose answer she was unquestionable, or was questionable. Bringing a a community together so that they can hear the law in Nehemiah 8 really is a magnificent thing to read. Think about this. There is no other group like the church that gathers together for one common purpose— I mean, we have saw the past couple of weeks political parties coming together. They may say they have one common purpose, but really it's, there's a lot of agendas floating around there. But for the church, that's not the case. The church comes together because of the fellowship they have with God under the authority of the preached word. That's why we come together. We sit under the authority of the preached word. Look, l- let me share my heart with you today. You, you, you matter to God. We may never be a church of 500 or, or 1,000 people, but I want you to think about this, okay? In mattering to God, as, as you lead your small group, as you care for our people, as you shepherd your family. The smallest task, as, as you wash clothes, as you iron shirts, shirts, do the dishes, as you prepare for dinner, as some of you ready or get ready to take the BART train and pack in like sardines on your way to work, as you get ready for your long commute and to be stuck in traffic. I know some of you are teachers as you pre- prepare for the school year, and again, as you, as you teach a room packed full of kids on a Sunday morning, or as you lead a Bible study for men or for women, remember this, that you matter to God. You may be doing ordinary things, but just remember you are a part of a community under God, serving and glorifying Him in all that you do. No one will write a book about Gateway Bible Church and we should be okay with that. Noam will write a book about Pastor Rod or, or Pastor JD or the missional work being done in Bolivia and Ukraine. My charge to you today is not do something great for God, but be an ordinary Christian doing the ordinary things God has called you to do. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of nameless Christians throughout the centuries who served God every day. And no one will write a book about them. Those who have reached unreached people groups, share the gospel, no one will write a book about them. They will be nameless, but they matter to God. We are an ordinary community of people serving an extraordinary God. The return exiles we find here are not only names at the end of the movie, at the end of a movie, it was a community you see, it was a community under God, coming together, preparing for the word of God. So church, whatever you do, you matter to God. Let me conclude here. In the end, the main reason we matter to God is really because of his son, Jesus Christ. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect community. They were in perfect harmony. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way on his his talk on the Trinity. He says they were really glorifying each other before the creation of the world. Yet it was Jesus Christ who left the perfect fellowship he had with the Father. It was Jesus Christ who left the perfect fellowship he had with the Father, only to be despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'm reading from Isaiah 53. He was born our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, he he was crushed for our iniquities, He was oppressed, afflicted, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus wanted community with us, yet because of our sin, we rejected him. He was slaughtered by his own people, the very people God redeemed time and time again throughout the Bible. The very people God was faithful to. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, it is only through the cross that Jesus penetrated our hearts in order that we would experience perfect community with him one day. Friends, we matter to God because of Jesus Christ. Let us live as a church under God and celebrate the gospel. Let us pray. Lord, we are humbled because you are a big and great, magnificent God. And sometimes we forget the gospel because it's said time and time again, but Lord, you, you did leave that perfect fellowship. Yet we, in our darkness, we rejected you. And so, Father, you, you really, by your mercy, you made us alive. You pulled us into community with you so that we could have everlasting joy on the, with the Father. And so we are grateful for the cross. We are grateful that we get to worship you, the one who is always faithful, even when we remain unfaithful. Lord, allow us to worship you now. We thank you for the church and for all the work being done, all the workers who are living ordinary lives here. We are serving such a great God. We may not be radical in the sense to the world, but we are very ordinary radicals serving you. Lord, we thank you again. All these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.